And indeed, we do say thank you to so many who faithfully support our church and the ministries of our church. Thank you, and uh, may the Lord bless you. I'm pleased to uh, give a little report here before I get into the message regarding a trip where, in fact, some of the dollars that you give go, in fact, a large number of dollars go. Um, so last, uh, this is a week ago, we, uh, we, by meaning lead elder Chad Clark and I, we got on a plane and we flew to Central America. And we started off in uh, Guatemala, and uh, the second part of the trip was in Costa Rica. Now some of you, your, your uh, geography is a little rusty, so this map will help you. Uh, it's south of here, maybe that's all you need to know, <laughs> a long ways south of here. And our missions ministry has uh, partners down there that we wanted to spend some time with. So we started off in Guatemala. We went to Guatemala City where there is a seminary there called SETECA, which stands for Seminary of Theology of Central America. For, I don't know, 15 years maybe, we have sent uh, $15,000 in scholarships to this school to allow... um, you know, Latinos to take training there, and which they otherwise would not be able to afford. And so we've had some go trips that have gone there, and I've never been there, and so we went there, and um, I was surprised at how big it is. A thousand students there at that seminary, and I'd have to believe that's one of the largest schools like that in all of Central and maybe even South America. Remarkable. And we got there, and our host there was a couple, a wonderful couple, Paul and Jean Silwalka, uh, which we have a picture of. You can put that up, please. And uh, what a wonderful couple. They've been there like 50 years they have served. Uh, Paul is a a professor of New Testament, and Jean is a force of nature. Uh, Hurricane Jean, like she just, man, she runs things and manages things. We just so appreciated. Uh, both of them. Interesting little detail, we got talking, and I discovered that they're the couple that introduced Erwin Lutzer to his wife, Rebecca, at Dallas Seminary. We had Erwin here a couple months ago, and so that was kind of a fun little connection. Uh, But anyway, we spent time there. Uh, We met the students, we got a tour, we met the president, uh, and just learned about what their ministry is, is doing there. And Sateca fills a big void in Latin America by providing theological training for pastors and for aspiring theologian types in an area where there isn't, you know, a Christian college on every corner. And uh, we we were very blessed to see what they're doing there, but we're blessed to partner with them. So once our time with Sateca was done, the rest of our time was with another partner of our church called Global Action. And Global Action provides... Uh, training for pastors and ministry leaders, but a different category. So Sateca is, you know, you largely, you go there, you're like a student there, you spend three or four years there, you get your degree there, then you go off and, and you, you know, teach or pastor somewhere. Most, most uh, Latino leaders can't afford to do that. They can't afford to leave their homes, which are probably oftentimes not, you know, they don't got a lot of money, and so if they were to leave, the, the household would collapse. So global action fits a different niche in the training of leaders in that they provide like seminary and a pill. They provide a training 
an eight-week, eight-session training that just takes these leaders through a basic uh, curriculum. So Old Testament survey, New Testament survey, uh, hermeneutics, which is Bible interpretation, how to preach, how to lead a church, what is a healthy church. These are the kind of sessions that they provide, which is light years ahead of anything else that they likely can afford or have accessibility to. You know, one of the things that we learned while we were down there is how the prosperity gospel is dominating Central and South America, uh, you know, churches. And you say, well, how, how could so many people buy into the prosperity gospel? It's a good question in America as well, by the way. But uh, how can, why is it so popular there? And the reason is, is that the pastors don't have, when you don't have training, when you don't have theological training, you just, you know, you turn the TV on and you're like, well, I guess I do ministry like that guy. And so uh, Global Action stands in that gap and provides at least a basic level of training for uh, these leaders and aspiring leaders in the church. So what we did is we, uh, we, we joined with Global Action and our first stop was Antigua, Guatemala. And you may not know Antigua, Guatemala unless you go to Starbucks because every Starbucks has a bag of Guatemala Antigua coffee beans. And so now maybe you'll remember that when you, when you go there. But we went to Antigua, charming city, um, a historic city. It was the, the capital of all of Central America at one time. And uh, we went there and we went out into the uh, surrounding villages and we actually met with a graduating class. I spoke to a, to a little graduation there. I think we have a picture of this now. I'll try to cue our, uh, our tech people. That's me there speaking from Romans 10 on beautiful feet. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. That was my encouragement to them. I had a translator, you see her there. She was fantastic. Uh, we had a meal there, which I'm glad we ate the meal before I saw how they prepared the meal, but that's a different story. <laughs> I'm just happy to be alive and, and with you today. <clears throat> Although I will tell you, I came back with some kind of conquistador cold. So you'll hear that in my voice. I hope to get through this service okay. But uh, we traveled from, uh, from Guatemala to San Jose, Costa Rica, uh, the capital of Costa Rica. What a beautiful country Costa Rica is. I mean, it's like the Hawaii of Central uh, Europe, or not Europe, Central America. Uh, just a beautiful country. But uh, we have a relationship through Global Action with a church there called Shalom Church. In fact, this last summer, we had a go trip of young people from our church that went and they ministered there at Shalom Church. And by the way, you'd be very proud to hear them talk about the group from Bethel Church that came to Shalom Church and they talked about the young people's work ethic and their, you know, uh, the, the attitude they had. Some of you parents would think, what child did I send there? But they, they came through in a big way. We've got a great reputation there at Shalom Church. Pastor Roy does some incredibly innovative ministry there. I, I, one quick example, I didn't show this first service, but hey, I can go as long as I want this service. So, um, but one quick story that he shared was just the ways that they're trying to creatively engage the community. There is a Catholic church there, which is true in every village of Central uh, America. And a girl was killed walking out of the Catholic church because there wasn't a sidewalk. And Shalom Church said, 
let's build a sidewalk. And they built a sidewalk in front of the Catholic Church to provide safe uh, passage for children leaving the Catholic Church. Things like that where they just creatively met needs and they've established they have a good name in that community. We, we are uh, partnering through Global Action uh, with them. And uh, I was able to uh, preach at the church. I think we have a picture of uh, the inside. What a beautiful facility. This is not an impoverished little village, but lots of people have caught the, caught the vision for what they're doing in this church. So, I mean, that's like one of the be- nicest buildings I saw while I was there. And you can't really tell, but that's me up there on the, on the platform uh, preaching. And uh, I preached at that church, and we heard about what God's doing there, and it was uh, really a great experience. We drank a lot of really great coffee while we were there. If you're a coffee snob, go on a go trip to Central America. In fact, here's a picture of, that's called an Americano. Look at the layer of froth on the top of that thing. And you know what? It tasted just as good as it looks. It was just fantastic. This was at a Starbucks facility. Starbucks owns like half of Costa Rica, it seems like. And you can see uh, in the distance, they've got the coffee uh, fields and, and the plants that grow the beans and all of that. So that was super, super yummy. Take that down. They won't think about the sermon if you leave it up. So a couple, a couple of, of, of key takeaways for us. One of them is we need to think very carefully about how uh, we as a Western church are resourcing and engaging in um, mission work around the world. And what I mean by that is that, you know, to see Sateca and to see Global Action, their vision is to raise up indigenous leaders who already know the language, they, you know, they, 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 they look like the community, they talk like the community, they're accepted in the community, and they resource them rather than the old traditional model of a missionary, Western missionary, who raises support, goes into a community, tries to learn the language, tries to be accepted. When they leave, what happens to their work? These are all very important questions that kind of global missions is asking right now, and I think we as a church should ask because we, we, are, we are investing hundreds of thousands of dollars every year in mission work around the world, and for us to think carefully, what is the most effective way that we can to do it? What Global Action does is it equips these guys at a fraction of the cost that it would take for a Western missionary uh, to go there. You know, when you think about global Christianity, it's easy for us maybe to think, hey, we're where it's at. I mean, we're, this is America, we're Christians, la, 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 wrong. Christianity in America, along with uh, Europe, boo, is doing this. Christianity in Central America, South America, Africa, obviously China, is exploding. We are no longer the, the center of global Christianity. It's happening in places like that. Now I'm gonna fight it as best I can, we are gonna fight it here, right, amen? Okay, we don't wanna decline, we're gonna fight against that, but if you look at the big picture, that's what's happening. And so we as a Western church with resources and uh, opportunities that you know, the Latino community there would not have, what can we do to most effectively equip and resource and bless and to see a sustainable biblical Christian model happen there? That's our, that's our heart. I want to tell you one quick story about somebody that we met. 
Um, after the trip was done, we talked, okay, what was, what was our, our favorite moment? This was our favorite moment in a kind of weird way, okay? Um, while we were in Guatemala, they wanted us to uh, meet a few of the students and to see where they lived, to see kind of, you know, their, their setting. And so we went uh, outside of the city, we went to the home of a man by the name of Fernando. And Fernando had gone through global actions training. Fernando's like a, you know, children's pastor at this little church. But he runs a ministry to children, like 65, 70 kids every week that come to this ministry. They teach them the Bible, they feed them, and uh, they've got a very vibrant ministry that's going on. He went through the whole global uh, action training and he can't read. He just learned it all by hearing it. And so we went to his house and he opened the door. And when I say the door, it really, his house is like an alley. I have a picture of it here. We would call it kind of like an alley. You just sort of walk into this area and there's the kitchen. Uh, and the room's just, they're just kind of open, you know, out of this little alleyway off the street. So right away, you're sort of confronted with poverty. He has a huge smile on his face. He's so excited that we're there. Uh, I think I have a picture of him and his eight kids that live here. So here's this family. Uh, he's the one kind of beaming in the middle there. Two gringos in the back, pardon them. Uh, but... That's Fernando. And so we sat in a circle. You can see one of the chairs we sat in. We just sat in a circle there and we listened to his story. And uh, it was so powerful to hear him talking about his heart for the Lord and for uh, what God's doing in his, through his children's ministry and his church. And he shared this, and this was the, this was the moment for us on the trip. Uh, he said uh, that apparently recently, they had a situation, they didn't have resources to both feed their, their children in their children's ministry and the children in their family, eight kids. And they had to decide what to do. And he said this, he said, we decided to feed the children in the ministry and trust God to feed our family. I'm, I'm telling you right now, it was just And my, my eyes were fixed on his wife, who's just sort of this, you know, sort of humble Guatemalan woman sitting next to him as he tell the story and tears start coming down her cheeks. It was so powerful. And such an example of sort of that seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you, lived out in a impoverished setting. And we're working, by the way, to get some financial funds to them to help them. But the point is this, there are Fernandos all over the world. There are people, faithful, godly people, that they, they love God as much as we love God, and God loves them as much as he loves us, and yet they're in settings that are incredibly difficult, and they're making decisions that you and I would, you know, we hardly can conceive of a, of a decision like that, and yet there they are, being faithful and, uh, and trusting the Lord, and so it's... It's just neat to get into these places and to see that God's at work in other places of the world. There's something very powerful about, you know, you can look at the pictures or you can look at National Geographic or whatever, but when you go to those places and you're in their space and you're in their face and you look in their eyes and you realize this is a real human being, just like me. There's something very, very powerful about that. And so I, I share this with you to, to broaden our vision as a church 
to what it means to be involved in the Great Commission, and maybe to encourage you that perhaps what your spiritual life needs is to get out of your bubble of comfort and maybe go on a go trip with our church in 2020 and go to some place that is uncomfortable and look these people in the eye and get a heart for what God is doing around the world. God's at work so much beyond Northwest Indiana and Bethel Church in your home. He's a big God, it's a big world. So many people, so much need. So maybe God will get you on a go trip in the future. We were blessed to go. Thank you for allowing me to do so. Let's transition now to our time in God's Word. I begin with a question. Do you ever fear that maybe God is just done with you? You ever wonder at times when you've messed up yet again, when you have blown it yet again, ever ponder, God, why do you still love me? I've made such a mess of things. I've strayed, I've failed, I've wandered. God, do you still love me? Or maybe you're here today and you're in a season spiritually of a, of a desert. Like you've got memory of time in your life when things were vibrant spiritually, but it's been, it's been, uh, it's been dry. And maybe it's been dry for a long time. And you kind of wonder, does God still care for me? Is he hanging in there with me or not? And all of these questions really ask a very important question. What sort of God is God? And our passage today is going to address that in a way that I think by the time I get to the end, if you're a Christian here today, you ought to be encouraged. And I want to encourage you. But we got to get there the right way, which is through the character of God. And so our passage is a little longer than we normally tackle, and because of that, I'm going to take it in sections rather than reading the whole thing all at once, and you'll see that as I go here. But I want to begin at the end of chapter 10, Romans 10. We're in the series on, on, on Romans. We've been doing this for quite some time, and uh, we're here at the end of chapter 10, the beginning of chapter 11, and chapter 10 ends with this very, uh, I don't know, negative kind of statement where Paul writes this, but of Israel, he, God, says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. If you stop right there, you think to yourself, aha, I know what chapter 11 is going to say. It's going to say that in, in the New Testament, God is tired of the Israelites. He is for the Gentiles. The whole thing that Jesus did is so now Gentiles get their chance. God is so done with Israel after all of that. Would we be right? No, we would not, because here's how Romans 11 begins. I ask then, has God rejected his people, Israel? By no means. Stop there. By no means has God rejected his people. Again, who, who, what people are we talking about here? He's still talking about Israel. He's been doing this kind of since the beginning of chapter 9, and now he's really focusing in on, on Israel. And we're going to see in the coming weeks the famous grafting in image. If you know Romans, you know that whole picture of uh, the role of the Gentiles and the role of the Israelites. But here he's talking about Israel. 
Has God rejected his people, Israel? Well, who's Israel? I never want to assume everybody here sort of is, uh, you know, deep in the Bible. You might be new to Christianity, but if, so let me just tell you, if you read the Old Testament, you'll discover in places like Genesis 12 and Genesis 22 that the God of heaven entered into a special relationship with one particular people group, Abraham and all the descendants of Abraham. He says to Abraham, he says, I promise that your descendants will be like the sand of the sea, like the stars of the sky. I am entering into a covenant with you, Abraham. This is an eternal covenant. I will always love you and your descendants. So, largely the story of the Old Testament is the outplaying of that relationship between God and the descendants of Abraham. And what God says over and over again is this relationship is going to endure forever. Amos 3 verse 2, he says, you only I have known of all the families of the earth. Deuteronomy 7, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So these and many other examples allow us to understand why over time as Jews grew up reading the Old Testament and hearing all of these promises over and over again that God will always love them, that they're special, they thought to themselves, I am most certainly going to experience eternal blessing. Why? Because I have the DNA of Abraham. I am a Jew. I am good with God. As I've said previously, my heritage is Dutch, and most Dutch think that God likes us more. And if you didn't know that, it means you've never met a Dutch person. We think God likes us more, and there's not a single verse in the Bible that insinuates that. How much more, if you're a Jew reading these verses over and over again, could you get it in your mind that, you know what? <laughs> I'm good with God. I have no worries. Everything's good forever. So what Paul does in Romans, big picture, is he threads the needle that Christ and the gospel is for all people and that God still loves Israel. So we get back to that beginning question. Has God moved on from Israel? Has God rejected Israel? Here's my point today. If God won't move on from a people as stubborn and rebellious as Israel has been, then he won't move on from you either. Okay? If he won't move on from the Israel of the Old Testament, stubborn and rebellious as they were, he won't move on from you either. So let's see how Paul gets at this now. And the first thing that Paul says is, is proof that God still loves Israel is himself. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Paul answers the question here with the now familiar in Romans, Megenetoi. Never. It's the strongest negative available in the Greek language. He couldn't say it any stronger. We would translate it maybe this way. Never, never, never. Will God reject his people? Never, never, never. That's what he's saying. 
He will never reject his people. Okay, Paul, well, that's nice of you to say that. How do we know it's true? And what he says is, look at me. Look at me. If God doesn't love the Jews anymore, then how am I, how am I under the love of God? How am I an apostle? And he points to his genealogical, uh, genealogical credentials. That's easy for me to say, isn't it? Descendant of Abraham, member of the tribe of Benjamin. How about that for credentials? That'll get you into any bar mitzvah in town. Roll those things out. A credentialed Jew and a follower of Jesus. Paul says, I'm proof positive that God still loves the Jews because I am under the grace of God myself. Verse 2, do you not know that scripture says of Elijah, here's now a second proof, how he appeals to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Now, you may or may not know this story. This is an Old Testament story from 1 Kings. But here's how the story goes. That the great prophet Elijah has a showdown with Ahab and Jezebel and all the Baal prophets, Israel had largely turned to worshiping Baal, which was a Canaanite god, a god of fertility and sex and rain, and they, had, they were worshiping Baal. And Elijah's like summoning the people of God back to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says, let's, let's have it out. And so they go to the top of Mount Carmel, and there, there are 400 prophets of Baal, and he says, all right, Let's see which God is actually God. You make an altar, I make an altar. The one that fire comes down from heaven, that's the God. They said, fine. And so they start with the Baal prophets. And they build an altar and they put a sacrifice on it. And the text tells us that all morning long, they prayed and they danced and they cut themselves and they cried out to Baal to send down fire on this altar. And it didn't happen. And Elijah starts trash talking them. He says, oh. Maybe, maybe Baal's asleep. Maybe he's busy using the bathroom. That's literally what he said. So Elijah had a little trash talk in him. And uh, finally, nothing's happening. He says, all right, let me show you now. And so they built the, temple, the, the, the altar to the God of Israel. And not only that, he says, hey, why don't you get some water and pour water all over this thing. And so they took buckets of water and they poured all kinds of water over it. And then Elijah cried out to God and down came the fire. And the text tells us not only did it consume the sacrifice, it consumed the altar, and it consumed all the water around the altar. Kaboom! That's pretty convincing proof, isn't it? I wish I could do that here this morning. I think we'd all leave here revived in our spiritual walk, would we not? <coughs> to know with certainty that the God of the Bible is the God of heaven. And so Elijah says, kill the prophets. And they did. And they literally had a mountaintop Wonderful moment. This is a great moment of courage and strength for Elijah. Well, if you know the story, right away, Elijah hears, Jezebel has said, I'm going to take you out. Queen Jezebel, the queen of the land, says, I'm going to kill Elijah. And Elijah goes from being the mighty prophet to running like a scared schoolgirl into the wilderness. Oh, no, Jezebel. Off he goes. And there in the wilderness, God meets with him. 
And Elijah, as this is what, what Paul quotes from, Elijah says, God, I am the only prophet left. This faith that, that you've given, I'm the only one left. It's all me. A little messianic uh, complex, don't you think? I would say so. Because God says to him, oh, Elijah, you think all this depends on you, that you're the only faithful one. I've got 7,000 who have never bowed to Baal. Paul draws from that Old Testament story, and he says, God always has a remnant. That God always has a remnant of his work and of his grace and he always has people that are faithful to him even when it seems like everybody is falling away he always maintains a remnant he calls these here now paul does chosen by grace okay chosen by grace does that sound like anything we've heard before? Yes, oh, here we are back now in Romans 9. We can't get out of Romans 9 as we read through Romans because once again, Paul highlights the fact that these remnant faithful Jews are chosen by grace. They are predestined. They are foreknown. This is a work of God in their life. The Jews chosen by grace? I thought in the Old Testament they were saved by works and we're chosen by grace, we're saved by grace. Wrong. In fact, I've maybe told this story before, I don't remember, but at my ordination council, that might be a new term for you, but oftentimes churches will ordain, kind of lay hands on an individual, say, we believe that you're called to ministry. I had this back in 1994. At my ordin and, and before they do that, they often will summon a council to examine the candidate, which is such a fun time. Uh, because basically they get like the smartest theologian pastor types they can to come and to orally interrogate the candidate. And so the church that I was ordained at, that's what they did. They called in all these smart people to examine me. I don't remember if I slept very well that night, but probably not, because I was going to face the council in the morning. And so there I was, and I was uh, defending what I believed and was in my opinion, going along quite nicely. Huh, I think I'm going to make it through this thing. Until an old pastor asked this question. How were people in the Old Testament saved? You might think, how would you answer that question? How were, old, were people in the Old Testament saved? I don't remember my answer, but I remember kind of fumbling and bumbling and sort of quoting random verses and trying to say something that sounded intelligent but it wasn't really going so well. And you know, when you don't know the answer, just keep going, right? Just keep saying things. It always works in the essay test, right? Just write a lot, maybe the teacher will go, oh, he tried. So I just keep talking, and, uh, and I'm not making any sense, and I'm probably not saying anything that's actually accurate. And I took a pause, and the old wise pastor sort of interjected, and he said, did you mean to say they're saved in the Old Testament the same way they're saved in the New Testament? And I said, that's exactly what I meant to say. I was getting around to that. Yes, exactly right. Is the old pastor correct? How are people in the Old Testament saved? Oftentimes, people sometimes they read the, the Old Testament and think, ah, oh, they're saved by obeying the law. 
They're saved by going to the temple. They're saved by offering the blood of bulls and goats. And then you read Hebrews, and it makes it clear nobody was ever saved by offering bulls and goats and doves and all of that stuff. No, we are saved in the New Testament by the grace of God, and the Old Testament saints were saved by the grace of God. Nobody earns it. It's all chosen by grace. Old Testament Jews, New Testament Gentiles, you're a Christian here today. How did you get saved? You say, well, my grandpa talked to me and I, you know, I, I heard about the gospel and I prayed with my, my aunt one day or whatever, whatever it was. No, you were saved because you were chosen by grace. It was the grace of God sovereignly in your life that opened your eyes to see and your ears to hear and you trusted in Jesus Christ and came under the grace of God. We're all saved the same way. So we mustn't read the Old Testament and think, oh, all these Jews mentioned here are in heaven. Can't wait someday to meet, you know, pick scoundrel from the Old Testament. Really? Listen to what Paul says in uh, 1 Corinthians 10. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud. He's talking about the Israelites in the Exodus. They were all under the cloud and they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with them, most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. In other words, you can walk through the Red Sea, and it doesn't mean you're going to heaven. Far from it. Which begs the question then in Romans 11, who are the his people that he is talking about? Who are the his people that God will never reject? Is it all descendants of Abraham? No. Is it all Old Testament Jews who went to the temple? No. Here we have it. It is all those chosen by grace. It is all Jews chosen by grace. And by the way, it's all Gentiles chosen by grace as well. These are the people that God will never reject. Verse 7, what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and bend their backs forever. That imprecatory, strong language. What Paul is saying is the elect Jews obtained it, but the rest were hardened. So we have that theme then again, that God is sovereign, but we are responsible. And these two tensions from Romans 9 and 10 continue as we think about the Israelites. They are chosen by grace. Those that are, are the remnant. The remnant are the elect. The non-remnant, non-elect, this is technical, but hang with me. They failed to achieve what they were striving for, which was right standing before God, right? They, they followed the law right down to the little, you know, the, the tithing, the mint, and the dill. They were faithful to the Sabbath, and they followed this, that, and the other, but they failed to obtain right standing with God. And he quotes from Isaiah 29 and Psalm 69 and applies that condemnation 
to Jews who seek God on the basis of their own righteousness. No, this won't work. In fact, you do that, your eyes no longer see and your ears no longer hear. That's very strong language. And you say, hey, prove that. I'll prove it this way. We have people in our church, they minister the gospel to Jews around the world to this day in Jerusalem and Israel and other places. And they will tell you, it's a very difficult thing to convince a practicing Jew that Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God. 2,000 years after Paul writes this, it is still a very difficult thing. Why? Because it's hard for their eyes to see. It's difficult for their ears to hear. Paul says in Corinthians, there's a veil over their hearts that keeps them from seeing who Jesus really is. Their hearts are still hard, as Paul said so many years ago. So what's the point of all of this? Let me bring it all together here, okay? God has been faithful to his people, Israel, by being faithful to a remnant of true Jewish believers. They are children of Abraham by physical DNA. They are children of Abraham by spiritual faith as Jesus is their Messiah. And so this shows God's enduring love for his people. And guess what we're going to find out at the end of chapter 11? Paul's going to say this, so all Israel will be saved. All Israel will be saved. What's that talking about? It's speaking prophetically of a day in the future when there will be a kind of eyes-seeing, ears-hearing, and amongst the ethnic people of Israel, there will be a return, I don't know, returning, but a, a, a revival such that, well, maybe not everybody believes, you could say, it's like all, all Israel now believes that Jesus is the Messiah. That day is coming. So we say for ethnic Israel, your best days are yet to come, which is true for us as well. Uh, Gentiles, by the way. So, and that's the text, okay? That's the text. I don't know if you followed that. That was my best attempt to try to explain a little bit of a complicated section of Romans here. I'd like to draw all this together, though, with the question that I began with, which is a great question to ask no matter where you're reading in the Bible. What does this tell me about God? What do I learn about God from this text? And what we learn here should greatly encourage us about the character of God, namely this, that God will never, ever forsake his promises, and God will never, ever forsake his people. Let's take the promises first. God made promises in the Old Testament to Israel. Is he fulfilling them through the gospel of Jesus, the Messiah? Paul says, yes, he is. You can't see it, but that's what he's doing. Why is God doing it? Because God is a promise-keeping God. He is a promise-keeper. Even as Israel has constantly, over and over and over and over again, been a promise-breaker. This is the test of integrity, isn't it? Like, if you work with all honest people, it's easier to be a promise-keeper, isn't it? If you're married to a promise keeper, that's probably a fairly good marriage. If you're in a friendship with somebody who's honest and does what they say and has that kind of integrity, that's a friendship that will flourish. And so my ability to keep my promise is, you know, is not tested when everybody around me is keeping their promises. But when somebody breaks a promise or somebody betrays me, now the real test of my character as a promise keeper 
is revealed. And you read the Old Testament, it is not a pretty story. The Old Testament is not this amazing story of God finding these wonderful people who he enters into a relationship with and creates conditions for that relationship and where they're so faithful to him that it's just a lovey-dovey relationship all the way. That is not the Old Testament. <laughs> you read the Old Testament and it's God over and over and over again coming to these promise-breaking, unfaithful Israelites. And you're reading, you know, you're only halfway through the story and you're like, God, just start over. In fact, he thought about doing that once with Moses, you may know. It's like, just get out of my way, Moses, and let's start over with you. Moses says, no, don't do it. And God didn't do it. But in your heart, you're kind of like, yeah, do it, God. Because these people are just crazy, unfaithful. Why are you hanging with them? Why are you sticking to it with them? Each time, God merciful. I think of the book of Judges as an easy example of this. Go home and read Judges. Because here's the story of Judges. This is the time when there was no king and every man did what was right in his own eyes. And apparently what was right in his own eyes was sin. Because uh, what the, it's a story of, of Israelites who, who disobey God and they, they suffer consequences. God sends the Philistines and the Midianites and a bunch of other ites to come and persecute them, and in the midst of that now terrible time under the hand of the Philistines, God, they cry out to God, oh God, have mercy, we promise we'll come back to you, we'll never do it again. God sends a judge who defeats the enemy, restores the right order of worship, Israel flourishes, over time they forget about God, and they begin to involve in sin, and down they go again. What happens? God sends ites to persecute them. And in the midst of that persecution, they cry out to God, and they say, oh, God, we're so sorry. We will never, ever forsake you again. And so God sends another judge. Seven times there are these kind of ups and downs in judges, and every one of them, you think to yourself as you're reading it, God, just start over. These people are crazy. And yet God hangs in there with them. Why? Because he's a promise-keeping God. And he made promises to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. He made promises to David and Moses. He made promises that he will keep because he is a promise-keeping God. Never ever one time does he fail to fulfill his promise. Now, it may take a long time for that to happen, but he always fulfills his promise such that you get to the New Testament, and these same, you know, often unfaithful people, who gets the front row seat for the miraculous life of Jesus? Israel. Who are the first to hear that the kingdom of God has come? Israel. Who does the Holy Spirit fall upon at Pentecost? Israelites. What ethnicity are all the apostles? Jewish. Where does the era of the church begin? Jerusalem. There is no way that any understanding Israelite could ever accuse God of not fulfilling his promise. And here's my point today, because you probably aren't a, a Jewish. But my encouragement is this. If God 
will stick to his promises and not forsake even a rebellious people like Old Testament Israel, well, then now I've got a little hope that God's going to stick in there with me. Because we read the Old Testament, and guess who we sort of, you know, look like? It's not God. It's those unfaithful Israelites. How often we wander and stray. How often we are unfaithful to promises that we make to God in church. Oh God, I'll never look at the porn again. Oh God, I'll treat my wife better this week. Oh God, I'm not going to get mad at my kids this week. Oh God, I'm going to do this or that this week. And what's true by Tuesday? Promise breaking. God, will you reject me? Paul says he will never, ever be unfaithful. Will he not be faithful to us? Especially when you realize what a privileged position we are in versus the Old Testament Jews. I mean, to realize that we stand on this side of the incarnation and the work of Jesus, this means that in many ways we are even more the people of God than any Old Testament Jew ever was. We are more privileged We know Jesus, his humanity through his incarnation, his deity through his miraculous life and his resurrection, his redemption through the atoning work on the cross. We know his person, his work. We know his character far better than any Old Testament Jew. In fact, Jesus said this, that the least in the kingdom of God is greater than John the Baptist, who was the greatest man ever born. You realize that means my daughter in, 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 in the six-year-old class hearing about Jesus on the cross is in a more privileged position than even the man that baptized Jesus. And so are you. If you never heard one thing ever before than this message right now, you have more light about the greatest person and the greatest work that God has done than Moses himself. And if God was faithful to them in their unfaithfulness, how can we not, as his people, be confident that he is always going to be true to his promises? He is a faithful God. We praise him today for it. And secondly, God will never forsake his people. Okay? He'll never forsake his people. He always has a remnant. This is why this is so precious. God is a promise-keeping God, and he makes promises not in the theoretical and not in the abstract. He makes promises to real people. You read the Bible, promises like, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. That's not just a theological abstract. That is a personal promise to his people, and if you are a child of God today, that is a promise for you. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. And we look in the story, and we see just the ongoing, persevering love of God, even in the Old Testament. And what an encouragement it should be to us that in the midst of our lives, which so often it feels like the evil is winning, and, you know, we think about, you know, our, the world or our country or whatever, it just seems like there's so much evil that is always winning. And yet in the midst of all of this apparent victory of the enemy, there God has a remnant. There, God has a work that is true to what he said he would do. And this is where I think so many of the stories that we love have this same kind of thing going on. 
There's an apparent victory of evil, but wait, there's a remnant. There's a small band of faithful people who have not bowed to the evil king. So what about those hobbits carrying the ring of power on their way to Mount Doom? What about those four children mysteriously arriving at the lamppost in Narnia? What about the few resistance fighters hiding from the First Order? What about Robin Hood and his few merry men? We read these stories. We love these stories. Why do we love these stories? Because we see in the midst of apparent evil victory a remnant, a little group of faithful followers, a little band surviving by the power of Aslan. And Christian, what I want to encourage you today is if you are a genuine Christian, you are living that same story. Seven billion people on planet Earth. On my trip I was on, I, I, we were in, I don't know, Panama City Airport, which is surprisingly massive. Uh, people everywhere. I said to Chad, I go, there's a lot of people in the world. <laughs> That's what I said to him. He goes, yeah, I know. You ever have that kind of moment? You go to a ball game or someplace, there's thousands of people, and you realize this world is a big place. And there's a lot of people. And I feel so small in the midst of all of these things. And we can think that, you know what? Evil is winning and this world's going in the toilet all the time. There's no hope. And yet, we see that God always has a remnant. Those people of God living by the promise of God, trusting in the character of God to be a promise-keeping God in spite of all of the uncertainties of life around us. God always has a remnant through which he is exercising his sovereign grace and his sovereign will. So be encouraged, resistance fighters. That in the words of Martin Luther, though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. And there you have it. God is a promise-keeping God. He has made promises, and he has made them to people like you and me, and he will never forsake us. Will God ever reject his people? Never, never, never. That's my encouragement to you today. Hang in there. Hang in there.